Yeah, welcome again to Easter Sunday. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to our text. Uh, We're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 24. Um, All four of the Gospels have the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, For Good Friday, we looked at Luke chapter 23 uh, to study and learn of the story of Jesus' death his crucifixion, his suffering. And so we're going to just continue from our Good Friday service and go into Luke chapter 24. Yeah, Luke chapter 24. Um, Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what happened. We're going to skip ahead to verse 44. At this point, the disciples are all gathered, and they're having a meal together. And they're talking about Jesus, an encounter that some of them had on this road called Emmaus. And at this point, Jesus comes, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The word of the Lord. Church, the first time I experienced the pain of losing a loved one as an adult was when my grandfather passed away about 10 years ago. I remember that moment very vividly. Um, I was at church uh, in the office, actually doing some photocopying, and my father called me, and he told me that our grandfather had passed away. Uh, he was sick, and, and he was battling poor health for a long time. I just, I just wasn't ready and prepared to hear that news. My grandfather was a warm and generous man who always loved me. He was always good to me. And in that moment, when my father told me that he had passed away, what, what, when I should have just been filled with, with grief and sadness, 
What actually overwhelmed me was a tremendous feeling of guilt and regret. I was surprised. I thought I would just be sad. I thought I would just be, I, would, I thought I would start crying. But I remember feeling more guilty than sad, more regretful than sorrowful. Why? It's because I felt so terrible for not doing more to love and care for my grandfather. He had done so much for me and I had done so little for him. I was never sure about his faith in Christ. My grandmother was a devout Christian. My grandfather was pretty indifferent throughout his entire life. So I wasn't sure if he was really saved. And so when I heard that he had passed, I felt so bad that I didn't pray for him more, that I didn't evangelize to him more, that I didn't share with him the gospel, the good news, the saving grace of Jesus. I was conflicted with a mixture of grief and guilt. Well, church, in our passage today, Jesus' disciples and his followers are filled with an unspeakable sense of grief and loss. They too must have also felt so ashamed and guilty for not doing more to stand by their Lord, to love him, to be faithful to him in his darkest moments. Peter, the rock, had disowned him three times. Judas, the treasurer of the disciples, had betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver and out of his own guilt. When he heard and saw of the death of Christ, he hanged himself. All of the rest of the disciples, all of Jesus' followers had scattered. They had deserted him except for John, the beloved disciple, and Mary, his own mother. You see, they had stood at a distance. They watched their Lord be beaten, mocked, and crucified on the cross. It was certainly not only Jesus' darkest moment, it was his disciples, his followers' darkest moment as well. And so after Jesus dies on the cross, after Jesus says, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirits, the next Sunday, early on that morning, a group of women including Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, and Mary, his mother, where they went to the tomb where Jesus was buried to prepare his body with spices, as was the custom. You see, they, they would have done this on Saturday. Jesus died on Friday. They would have gone the very next day to prepare his body with spices, but they couldn't because it was the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday to honor and observe the Sabbath. They refrained, but they were waiting. They could not wait to go to Jesus' tomb, to anoint his body, to, to, to offer those spices in that tomb. So early, probably 6 a.m. at the break of dawn, they go to the tomb. They're ready to honor, to love on their master. Luke tells us that when the women arrived, they were shocked. They were shocked to see the stone was rolled away. And they went inside expecting to see the body. And they were worried, probably like, oh my gosh, did somebody desecrate Jesus' body? Did someone uh, defame and do further harm to Jesus' body? But the body was missing. And in the midst of their shock, they encountered two men in dazzling apparel. They were bright and brilliant Well, these men were angels. They were messengers of God. And they asked these frightened women this profound question. 
They asked, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And when the angels reminded the women of this truth, this teaching that Jesus had offered them, they remembered Jesus' words. You see, here the angels, they were proclaiming the risen and living Christ. Jesus was alive, and he was not among the dead. Jesus had been raised by the power of God. And here's what they're telling the women. This should not have surprised you. Jesus told you on multiple occasions, on the third day, I will rise again. Jesus taught his disciples about that story of Jonah who was in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus says, that's about me. Over and over again, he's telling his followers, I must die. I must be persecuted. I must be crucified and I will rise again. See, they shouldn't have been surprised. They shouldn't have been going to the tomb to prepare the body with spices. What they should have been doing on this Sunday morning is looking for the risen Lord. You see, on multiple occasions, Jesus told them that he would suffer, die, and rise again. But the woman had forgotten his words. The women forgot the words, the promises, the prophecies of Jesus. And they were seeking the living among the dead. Friends, do you know that we do the very same thing? We seek the living among the dead. See, Jesus tells us, I am the resurrection and the life. He tells us that the only way to experience the fullness of life is through him. He warns us against putting our treasures, our hopes, our passions, our joys in these things called jars of clay. And Jesus tells us that these jars of clay are places where moth and rust eat and destroy. And he's pretty much saying, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on earthly and temporal things. We've heard him say that but we forget his words. We've heard him tell us, seek first the kingdom of God. And we say, I know that. It's a famous song we used to sing when we grew up. And yet, we do not, we do not heed his words. Instead, we seek the living among the dead. We try to find life and fulfillment through success, status, and relationships. You see, all of us at one point have told ourselves, if I could just get that degree if I could just get that job, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just marry that person, I will have life, I will be set, I will be happy. But church, as good as those things are, they are important, education, relationships, work, provision, all of those things are important. As good as those things are, they can never make you whole. They will never make you whole. They will never give you the fullness of life, the happiness that those things give you is momentary and it is never enough. As soon as one appetite is satisfied, your heart craves for more, does it not? The moment you got your first job, you want your next promotion. The moment you got that promotion, you want more. You're looking for not a lateral move, a vertical move, right? You see this room, and I like this. I love this. This room is full of educated, employed, married people who can look you in the eye and say, yeah, those things are important, but they're not enough. Amen? Amen. Right? They are important, but they're not enough. I'm not just telling you. You can ask any, 
any married person in this room, it is not enough. It's good. You see, we can buy homes, we can go on vacations, we can do everything under the sun, but we will still be looking for more. Would you heed Jesus' words today? Stop looking for the living among the dead. Let's continue in our passage. As the woman remembered his words, they're like, oh, we remember what Jesus told us. We remember that he told us that he would rise on the third day. You know what they did? They went and told the apostles. They got so excited. They told the disciples. They went back and reported, Jesus is risen. We saw these two angels. The tomb is empty. He's not there. He's risen. And you know what the disciples did? They said, please. They did not believe them. They thought that you guys were making this up and it's just idle old wives' tales, right? You guys must be hallucinating. You guys must have, uh, you know, just be sleep deprived and just fooling yourselves. Imagine that. The own disciples of Jesus, who had also heard the promises and prophecies of Jesus, didn't believe these women. Now, let's, let's not get caught up in this modernist snobbery, thinking that all the people in Jesus' day were just gullible, okay? That they all believed in resurrections, and so it was just easier for them to believe. You see, this passage, Luke 24, tells us that we are more like the disciples, right? We have so much in common with the disciples, just like us. People back then in Jesus' day, they did not believe in a physical resurrection, okay? It's hard to believe that, and they didn't either. Many believed in spiritual life after death, but so do most people living on the earth today, right? Whatever your creed, whatever your religion might be, the majority of people that you meet they believe that there's some kind of life after death. And they all hope that they're going to the good place and not the bad place, right? That was common among the Greeks. The Jews believed in a return of God. They believed in a bodily resurrection, but only when God comes back and ushers and establishes his final kingdom. If there's a resurrection, there be, better be no more injustice, no more pain, no more sin, no more evil. There better be God, the king of kings, reigning in Jerusalem, and that wasn't happening. You see, back then, when someone dies, when you bury someone, they stayed in the ground. They didn't believe in a physical resurrection, just like most people here today have trouble believing in a physical resurrection. So that's why even the disciples, they didn't believe it. It was hard to comprehend, hard to accept when the women said, Jesus is risen. That's why Peter ran. He ran to go himself to the tomb. He's like, I got to see this. I don't believe you guys, but let me verify. And he saw, he saw the linens and the tomb empty. Now church, I don't have time today to give a full historical defense of the resurrection, but this account is one of the important points that supports the truthfulness and historicity of the resurrection. That the tomb was empty and that the women Women, not men, but women were the first eyewitnesses. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he writes this. He says, there was no possible advantage to the church to recount that all the first witnesses were women. This was not an advantage. This wasn't a good thing. It could only have undermined the credibility of the testimony, right? Why would he say that? Why would women as the first eyewitnesses kind of jeopardize the testimony, the validity of the resurrection? Because in Jesus' day, women were, women's testimonies were not admissible in court. They weren't. 
Women, unfortunately, had low social status, hardly any legal rights. And yet in the gospels, women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb. They're the first ones to see and meet the risen Lord. You see, if the resurrection was a manufactured story, if this was a myth that Peter and Paul and James and Matthew all made up, you know what they would have done? They would have placed Roman officials, Jewish leaders, or themselves, the disciples, the apostles there as the first eyewitnesses so that there'd be some validity, some authority, some weight to the witnesses. But it didn't happen that way. The women were there first. And here's the thing, the women told everyone, right? The women told everyone. So the word was out. They couldn't go against it. They couldn't say I was there when the women were there. And the women had already told the disciples. They're already telling the other followers of Christ. They're telling their friends. They're telling their family that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. I went to the tomb on Sunday morning and we saw the, we saw the grave clothes. We met the angels. And Peter couldn't say he was the first one there. Matthew couldn't say he was the first one there. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and other women were there first. That's how it happened. And the gospel writers had to record those as the facts. Now, if the resurrection really did happen, what is the significance? Why is Easter so central to Christianity? And the answer is this. Here's why the resurrection is so important. Here's why Easter is the chief and most important holiday in the Christian church, it's because the resurrection validates the cross, okay? It's because the resurrection validates the work and the promise of the cross. The resurrection is the glory of the cross. That's the title of today's sermon, the glory of the cross. Let me explain this point. You see, in the second half of our passage today, and I hope this will fly up on the screen, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Church, the central message of Christ was that he came to fulfill the scriptures as the suffering servant. Jesus tells us, John the Baptist declares the first time he sees him, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, sin of the world. Jesus told us and he declared that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. All of Jesus' teaching, all of his miracles, all of his works and deeds, they all point to the fact that he came to die on the cross for our sins. But this claim needed verification. He couldn't just say it. He wasn't just selling it. He had to prove it. One theologian named Douglas Kelly, he wrote the following. When God raised Jesus from the dead, three days after his death by crucifixion, he was giving fullest approval to and acceptance of the price he paid for all our sins in his suffering and death on the cross. Okay. That's what God the Father was doing. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, God was approving the work of Christ. He was approving the promises of Christ. He was validating all of the person and work of his son, Jesus. You see, church, without the resurrection, you know what Jesus is? He's just a martyr, okay? 
You guys know what a martyr is, right? It's someone who dies for a cause. It's not just unique to Christianity, right? Every religion, every movement can have a martyr, somebody who's so committed, so radical that they will die for the cause, whether it is civil rights, whether it is Islam, whether it is Christianity or Judaism, whatever it might be, there have always been people dying for religious or political causes. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he's just a martyr. He's just a martyr. But because he rose from the dead, Jesus proved that he was no liar. And he proved that he was God. He proved that his word was true. The resurrection is the validation of the cross that the work is finished, that God has accepted the ransom paid by Jesus' blood. And God has approved the promise that if we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven. You see, Paul makes this amazing and ever important point in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 to 20. This is what Paul writes. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's crazy. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, which means die, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. You see what Paul is saying there? The cross is the center of our faith and the resurrection is the reason for faith. Let me say that again. The cross is the center of the Christian faith. It's the center of our faith. And the resurrection is the reason for that faith. It is the ground, it is the proof, it is the justification for the cross. You see, with every religious claim, you have to die to see whether they're right or wrong. Right, guys? Every religious claim, the only way you can verify it is if you die and you experience it. Right? So if... In the Quran, it says that if you die in jihad and you die as a martyr for the Muslim faith, you get 40 virgins in the afterlife. There's only one way to find out whether you get that, right? You've got to die a religious martyr, right? If Hinduism and Buddhism says that after each life, we're reincarnated and based on how good you do, how righteous and noble you are, you either level up you can become a prince, right? Or you level down and you become a slave, right? There's only one way to find out whether or not Hinduism and Buddhism is true. You have to die. You have to die and then you'll you'll see. That's the verification. You have to wait to the end of your life to see whether or not those claims are true. Atheists claim that once we die, there's nothing, right? That's what the atheists believe, okay? It's a belief claim. It's a worldview. Well, you know what? You have to die to see whether they're right or wrong. What's the difference with Christianity? The difference is Jesus has already died. And three days later, he came back. He's the only one who's come back from the grave, raised by the power of God. Not just in an earthly weak body, but in a glorified perfect body. You see in that conversation that we skipped when Jesus met his disciples over that meal, he appeared and he scared the bejesus out of them. They're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, we didn't expect to see you here. And they thought they were seeing a ghost. 
They, were, they thought he was an apparition. They were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, Jesus. But Jesus said, see my hands, touch the holes. In fact, you guys are eating, give me some of that. He sat down and had a meal with them. Jesus returned in resurrected bodily glory. You see, Christianity offers you more than a wait and see. More than a wait and see. Christianity is testable. The promises offered in the cross either stand or fall based on the resurrection. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. He's saying, I'm gonna go all in, okay? If Jesus rose from the grave, this is true, our sins are forgiven. If the resurrection is false, we are all pathetic, right? Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's what Paul says. He's not afraid to say that because he knows he himself has seen the risen Lord on that road to Damascus. He encountered Jesus Christ. He is an eyewitness to the resurrection and he knows how important this is. If there was no resurrection, we're still in our sins. But if the resurrection is true, then everything changes. Paul wrote that just 15, 20 years after the death of Jesus that he rose from the dead, that Jesus appeared to over 500 people and all of these people became eyewitnesses. They saw him, they heard him, some of them ate with him, they touched him. And because they had this undeniable eyewitness encounter with Jesus, they were willing to die for him. They were willing to die for him. Jesus proved that he truly was all that he claimed to be. He wasn't just a teacher offering fluffy promises and tickling the ears of his hearers, promising everlasting life, promising forgiveness. No, he proved it when he returned from the grave. Church, the resurrection changes everything. Now, if this is true, there are a few implications of the resurrection. And these are the closing application points I wanna share with you guys. First implication of the resurrection, if it is true. There's life after death, and this world is not our home, okay? If the resurrection is true, the implication is this. There is life after death, and this world is not our home. Uh, You can ask my wife. I've got this funny habit. Whenever we travel uh, and we go to a hotel, and maybe you guys are like me, and maybe you guys think I'm weird. Uh, Even if I'm staying just for one night, I open the drawers and put my stuff in, right? I just do. I don't want to like live out of a suitcase. So I put my socks and my shirts and my pants in. And if I have a jacket or whatever, I hang it. I even hang it on the closet, right? In the closet. And I get ready. I just settle in. Even if it's one night, right? I do that. And people are like, why are you doing that? It's so weird, right? It's so unnecessary. Like, aren't you going to forget stuff? And I was like, no, no, well, I, you know, that's just me, right? I want to, I want to settle in. I'm here at the hotel. But that hotel doesn't belong to me. I'm only staring there one night, two nights. It's not my home. Why do I go through such energy to get comfortable, to put my feet down, to put my possessions down and settle into that hotel room? You see, this is what we do with our lives. We settle into this world. We unpack our bags and we live here We live life, we make decisions, we make sacrifices, we make commitments as if we're gonna live here forever. Adults, we overextend ourselves financially, 
for 30 years, 30 years of debt slavery to own the house of our dreams. Now, I'm not poo-pooing on home ownership. One day, I hope to do it. But man, to be house poor for 30 years just to live in that great neighborhood, to have that square footage, to have that kind of dream house. We give our best years. We give our best efforts for the sake of our careers. We work ourselves finger to the bone just so that we can keep making it and accomplishing and achieving some of your strongest years, some of your most passionate years. You pour all of that into your career. We make idols of our kids. We place them at the center of our lives. But you know what? You can't live in your home forever. Okay? You cannot live in your home forever. Everyone either quits, gets fires, or retires. And, and, and I've never heard anyone at the end of their life said, I wish I worked more. Oh, I wish I was able to put a couple more years in at the, com- at the company. Right? And your kids, as much as you love them, they will eventually move out. They'll get a life of their own if you've done well. Right? If you've done well, your kids will leave you and they will, they'll, they'll, they will have a life of their own and they might call you once a week. Parents, I am living proof of this, okay? I was at the center of my parents' world for 18 years. I mean, piano lessons, trumpet lessons, boy choir, soccer, tennis, cross country, private school education, whatever it might be. My parents poured their lives into me, and the moment I turned 18, I left home from Atlanta, Georgia, from my private school. I went the furthest away from home out here in Southern California, and there hasn't been a year when I went back more than two times. Right? There was one year, my junior year, I spent two months at home, and after that, it's a week here and there. Parents, didn't that break your heart? Right? You're like, oh, my kid's gonna go to Cal State Northridge and stay close. Right? And that was 17 years ago. If my parents made me their chief idol, their investment, their purpose in life, they made a lousy investment, guys, right? They made a lousy investment. The resurrection tells us that there's more, more to this life than what we see, than what we experience, what we try to attain here on this earth. Jesus offers us a better life than the best this world could ever offer. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, his promises, he promises when he returns, he will raise us up in eternal glory. That's what Jesus offers us, the kingdom, eternality, full joy and reconciliation with him. Here's the second implication. The first is the earth is not our home, right? There's life after death. The second is this, that if he rose from the dead, he deserves our worship and he deserves our witness. This is how the disciples responded at the end of Luke, right? After Jesus has appeared and they've eaten with him and they touched him and he's reminding them of all of the scriptures, all of the things that he says, Luke 24 ends with these verses in 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Church, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe in our risen Lord, It cannot just be an intellectual ascent. Be like, okay, that makes sense. It can't just be this like, I appreciate you, Jesus. What Jesus demands, what the risen Lord deserves is your worship. 
and your witness and your boldness for him. You cannot keep this good news to yourself. This was the unstoppable, inevitable, undeniable practice of the early church. The apostles, the disciples, the women, they could not stay silent. Even in the face of persecution and death, they refused to deny the risen Lord. They could not reject the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he alone deserves your worship and your witness. You see, Luke makes sure to mention that they didn't just, the, the, the Christians, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they didn't just go to the outskirts where it was safe and start their own little churches. Where did they go? They went right back into Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, where Jesus was mocked and beaten and scorned. They went right back into Jerusalem, into the temple, which is the sacred place of worship, not for the Christians, but for the Jews. And they went to the temple saying, Jesus is the Messiah. The one that you crucified has died for your sins. He is the Lord. That is boldness. That is witness. That is worship. That's what Jesus deserves from us as well. If Jesus is the risen Lord, would you worship him? If Jesus is the risen Lord, would you boast in him? Finally, and most importantly, the third implication is this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then your sins are truly forgiven. It's not just sentiment. It's not just a platitude. Your sins are truly forgiven if Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has overcome sin and death. He's victorious over Satan. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. You see, church, most people in the world, they do this thing called overselling and under-delivering. Uh, under uh, Sorry. You guys have heard that before. Have you guys experienced that? Someone who oversells and then under-delivers? It's the worst in business, right? It's the worst in business. Someone is interviewing and they tell you how great they're going to be and then you hire them and they are terrible. They're like, oversell, under-deliver. If you ever are looking for consulting, those consultants, oversell, Rarely deliver, right? There's church consultants nowadays that do that. Like, we will double the size of your church. We'll double your offering. And you pay an exorbitant amount of money for them to come and do that and under deliver. It happens all, I've seen it personally, right? You sign up for a personal trainer, right? In spandex and all, they're like Lululemon out. And they say, we are gonna give you a beach body in 30 days. Oversell, under deliver. When a man proposes to a woman, Right? <laughs> <laughs> this is like the king of overselling and under-delivering. Like, I will always make you happy. I will like, you know, like love you like with all of my heart. You know, you'll never, you know, whatever it might be. That is the chief moment of overselling and under-delivering. But think about what Jesus promised. He made the most wondrous, he made the boldest promise, the greatest promise one could ever make, telling us that he will pay your ransom, that he will forgive and free you from sin, that he will reconcile you with our Father in heaven, that he will offer you and give you eternal life. Who can make that kind of promise? And yet Jesus
has fully delivered this. He has proved this. He has guaranteed this because he himself rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. Satan became a vanquished and defeated foe. Jesus Christ has sold us and promised us the greatest offering that he could ever give. And through his death and resurrection, he's attained that. He's won that for us. I want to close with Jesus' words in John 11, verse 25 and 26. This is what Jesus declares. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Church, this is what Jesus is asking us today. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us to believe in you? To see you and to trust in you? And we confess that all of us here have moments, we have corners in our hearts that are filled and held captive with unbelief. Father, I pray that, that you would help us, that you would have mercy upon us, that you would give us the gift of faith to be able to see our sin, to be able to see the, the veil and the lies of this world and to turn away and look to Christ. Help us to see Jesus as he truly is, the crucified and risen Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for doing what we could not do. We thank you for your victory. And Lord, all we want to do right now is to, to worship you, to believe in you, and make you known. Give us grace. Give us strength. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.